All right, remain standing and let's pray together. Father, we thank you that we get to come here this morning and worship you. We thank you that you are God in heaven and you are God on earth. God, we thank you that there is nothing that can stop you. There is nothing that can slow you down. You are king. And God, we pray that this morning you would reign in this place. We pray that you would reign in our hearts, reign in our lives. God, we pray that you would take us higher, deeper, further with you. God, we thank you for the blessings that we have already experienced during this calendar year. But God, we, you, we know that you have more for us. God, the best is yet to come. And we pray, God, that you would just work, you would minister in our midst today. God, I pray that the words that I speak would be enlivened by the Holy Spirit. I pray that the facts and the information that is brought this morning would not just be dead facts and information, but it would be something that we could use, we could take into this world, and it would become powerful to tear down strongholds. It would become powerful to lead people to the knowledge of Jesus Christ and the salvation that's only offered through him. So God, I pray that you would open our minds to understand more about you this morning. You would open our hearts to experience a deeper work of your Holy Spirit. God, I pray that you would reign in this place today. Father, we love you. We love each other. God, we love the community and the world around us. Even those who don't know you, God, we are called to love them and to show them that there is a Father in heaven who loves them and wants them to come home to the Father's house. God, we pray that you would use us in any way that you can. God, we offer ourselves to you so that that might happen. Thank you for meeting with us today, God. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. And Rushwood said together, amen. You may be seated. Thank you guys for uh, coming out this morning, worshiping with us. Thank you guys that showed up last week. We know it was crazy last week with the weather going on and we thought everything was working well around here, and then the power went out, and we moved over to our secondary building, and I felt like we had a wonderful service over there in Worship Center, too. If you enjoyed that, if you were here and you enjoyed that, would you give God some praise this morning? Now, I want to I encourage you, though, when we were over there in that building and we were all sitting tight together, man, y'all worship good. Y'all sounded good. There's no reason that we can't do that in this room as well. So make sure when you come, I always, I've told you before, I hate the term preliminaries. That's an old church word that we need to get rid of because we used to say we have the preliminaries and then we have the service and the sermon. Well, that's not how it is. Everything here is worship to God. So get here on time, worship God, lift your voices to him, and, and just praise him good when we come into this place. Amen. Well, this morning, I always try to tell you something good. This morning, there's a couple of things good going on this weekend. It just kind of coincide one with the other. And I would be remiss if I did not mention these to you today. And I think they have a lot more in common than people might give them credit for. Um, but tomorrow, you know, is Martin Luther King Day, and, and there will be celebrations all over the country about that. Today is Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. And so I think both of those things fit together. Both of those things need to be acknowledged. I, I want to talk, first of all, about Martin Luther King Day. You know, he had a famous speech about his dream that he had. He had a famous dream that he put forth. And there's a quote up there that I really like. He said, I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, 
but by the content of their character. No matter what you feel about Martin Luther King, and he was not a perfect man, if you read his story, he was not perfect in all his ways, although I do believe that God used him and worked through him. But no matter what you feel about him, I think we all have to agree with that quote right there. I don't want to be judged by the content of my skin, the color of my skin, but by the content of my character. And even when we judge somebody on the content of their character, we do that acknowledging that God can change that character. God can change a person's life around. And so I believe that is such a sincere, a good quote, something we can hold on to. I think it's very similar to how God sees people. In God's word in 1 Samuel chapter 16 and verse 7, God's word says this. The Lord said to Samuel, don't judge by his appearance or height, for I have rejected him. Here's the key part for us this morning. The Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. We should be like that. We should strive to be more like God, where we do not judge people by their outward appearance, but by their heart and by their character. And God has approved everyone through Jesus Christ who will come to him, who will repent, and who will come to Jesus Christ in faith. And so when we get to heaven, I just want you guys to know it's not going to be all one color. It's not going to be all one color. There are going to be people from every tongue, every nation. We'll be together there worshiping God through Jesus Christ. And so we might as well make it look a little bit more like that on earth as we go. And so that's what I wanted to say about Martin Luther King Day to you. But also I wanted to mention Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. We do a lot of pro-life work around here. And so I don't want to spend a really long time on this because we do this a lot. But I did feel like it was worth mentioning. Sanctity of Human Life Sunday happens on the Sunday that is closest to the Roe versus Wade decision. 46 years since the Roe versus Wade decision, and we're looking at 65 million children who have been aborted in the United States of America alone. I don't know if you saw that the leading cause of death around the world last year was abortion globally. And so this is a very important thing. I believe it's something that God cares about. And the dream of Sanctity of Human Life Sunday is that everyone, everyone would have a chance under the law to be born and to grow and to live and to love and to die a natural death at God's appointed time for them. And so we support life around here. We're part of Love Life. That cranks back up in February. If you have not come to one of the Love Life walks with us yet, you need to go ahead and get that on your calendar. Once a month, as Love Life runs, it's 40 weeks. Once a month, our church is going to have a Saturday. It'll be the third Saturday of every month where we go up and we support Love Life and we're part of those walks. I know some of our people here are there almost every week. Uh, as they're doing those walks. But I want you to go ahead and plan to plug into that. It will change you. In fact, I've taken several pastors up there to, to the Love Life walks, and every single pastor that I've actually gotten to go on one of these Love Life walks with me has decided to join that movement. That's how powerful it is. So I'm inviting you. I hope that you will be part of that. I think it will bless you. It will rip your heart out first, but then it will inspire you that God's people are stepping up and they're running to the scene and they're doing what's right in this issue. But how do these two days fit together? How does the day Martin Luther King Day and the Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, how do they dovetail? How do they fit together? Well, I think it's really simple. Every person, every person is created in the image of God. Every person, it does not matter their color, it does not matter their ethnicity, their social background, their situation in life, it does not matter. Every person that is born is created in the image of God 
And so we reflect some of God's character. But God wants us to come home and God wants us to know Him and God wants us to be His children through Jesus Christ. And so both of these days are about respecting that and honoring that. That we should have rights for all people. That we should have, everybody should have the freedom and the chance to grow up and get to know God, love each other, and, and serve Him in this world. And so that's what these days, both of them are about that because we all have the same Creator who is God Almighty. And so however you celebrate today for the Sanctity of Life Sunday, tomorrow for Martin Luther King Day, it all should come back to God and God's love for the people that He created. Every single person has value. Every single person has worth. Can we give God some praise on that this morning? And today we're going to continue our series. We, we've started a new series called Why I Believe. We were actually going to do the second part of it last week. The weather kind of threw a monkey wrench in that, but that's okay. Um, but we're actually going to start the second part this week. The first week I talked to you about why we could believe in God, why philosophically we could believe in God, why there were good intellectual reasons to put our faith in God. And you know, guys, I, I'm a little bit worried because I know some people get into that sort of thing and some folks don't. I'm a person who loves that sort of thing. I love diving into books. I love learning new things. I love to, I learn, I love to learn God, love God with my mind, if I can say that. But some people are more, have more of an emotional faith, and that's okay. I think we need both groups. I think we need folks who really plug into God with their mind and folks that really plug into God emotionally. And I think we should have some overlap in our minds but in, in our lives. But guys, I had a lot of you who came to me and said that sermon meant a lot to you, that you really enjoyed it, that you were able to share it with other people. And so I hope as we continue to dive in over the next couple of months into these issues, I hope that it feels the same way to you every single week. There's something you can hang your hat on. There's something that, that helps you be a better witness for Jesus Christ that we talk about every week. And so last time we talked about rest. We talked about reasons for believing in God. We talked about the, exist, uh, the, the right and wrong that's a good reason to believe in God. We talked about existence that's a good reason to believe in God. Science actually backs up God. And then we talked about how we, at the end of the day we have to taste and see. I can give you all the intellectual stuff in this world, but until you taste and see that the Lord is good, you're never really going to experience Him the way that you need to experience Him. And so we talked about all of that. And so believing in God is a big first step. When we get to the idea that we're not atheists, which means no God, and we're not agnostics, which means we don't know if there's a God, but we're theists, that actually means we believe that a God exists. That's a big first step for a lot of people, but we can't leave it there. Because this morning, church, I want to confess to you, I don't just believe in God. I believe in God through Jesus Christ. I believe not just in any amorphous God. You know, a lot of times we have prayers offered up publicly to God, and, and a lot of people aren't offended by those prayers that are offered up to God. But when we put the name of Jesus Christ in it, something changes. When we put his name in there, something changes. There's a, a lot of people have animosity toward that name. It's like the Gaithers saying years and years ago, there's Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. There's just something about that name. Something about that name that stirs up emotions. Either when you hear the name of Jesus, your heart soars and you think, that's my Savior, that's my Lord, that's the God that I worship. Or for some people where they hear the name of Jesus, anger stirs up. Have you ever noticed, guys, that out there in our culture sometimes there's strange bedfellows that are coming together? 
I mean, you have the Muslim groups working with the atheist groups, working with other groups, all coming against Christianity. It's kind of odd because these groups should not be getting along. But when it comes to the name of Jesus, they're all aligned against the name of Jesus oftentimes. There's something about that name. And so believing in God is a big first step, but believing in Jesus, I believe, is, is going on beyond that. It's something that we eventually have to get to. Around the world today, there are 4,200 religions, 4,200 different religions around the world today. Everything from Scientology to, I'm not making this up, Star Wars, Star Wars religion. There is actually a religion based on the Star Wars movies and that whole mythology there. I'm not making it up. There are actually people who worship through Star Wars. What a strange, strange thing. But around 80% of the world's population believes in a god or gods, some sort of deity or some sort of higher power. But as I already said, I don't just believe in some higher power. I believe in God through Jesus Christ. I believe in God through his son, the one who I believe is the savior of the world. And so if you were to say to me this morning, Brent, with all the religions out there and all the religious figures and all the holy books and philosophies, why do you believe in Jesus? I would say that is a very fair question. This morning, if you're watching online and you're a skeptic and you're wondering why in the world I believe in Jesus, that's a fair question because there's a lot of different ways of thinking. There's a lot of different philosophies that are out there. Let me tell you this morning, if somebody comes to you and says to you, why do you believe in Jesus? Let me give you an answer you probably shouldn't give. One of the answers you probably shouldn't give is, well, I was just raised that way. That may be true. I believe I'm a Christian because my mom and dad were good models of the Christian faith. I saw that they were very sincere. I saw how their Christian faith made them love other people and minister to other people. And they were a very good example of the Christian faith. And I think it would be very true for me to say one of the reasons I'm a Christian today is because I grew up as a Christian. I grew up in church, even the good day, there, there were bad days in church, there were good days in church. But to me, the good days always outweighed the bad days. When God showed up in a special way, it was always more powerful than when Satan was fighting and it seemed like things were in trouble, things were about to fall apart. It seemed like God, when he showed up, that was more special to me. But it's just not a really good answer to give people when they ask you why you're a Christian to say, well, I was raised that way. Because those you know that are of the Muslim faith would easily say, well, I'm a Muslim, I, I follow Islam because I was raised that way. Or Hindus that you know might say, I'm a Hindu because I was raised that way. Or atheists or skeptics might say, I'm an atheist or a skeptic because I was raised that way. And so that all puts that kind of on level playing field and it doesn't, doesn't help us a lot to give that answer. So I wouldn't use that answer, but today I want to give you some reasons that I believe in Jesus that go beyond that. Some intellectual reasons, some things that I think we can use as people question us about the faith that we have. Guys in the booth, I'm backing up for just a second, back in my notes. But 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15. This is a command of God that we don't often see discussed. But 1 Peter 3, 15 says, Instead, you must worship Christ as the Lord of your life. And if someone asks you about the hope you have as a believer always be ready to explain it that's the command of God we're to always be ready to explain the hope that we have within us through Jesus Christ if somebody were to see you on the street and say you're wearing a Christian t-shirt or whatever and they say why are you a Christian you're to always be ready to explain that now there are people out there that can explain it a whole lot better than I can 
And there are people out there that can explain it a whole lot worse than I can. But we all should be able to explain it at least some way. At least to some extent we should be able to explain why we believe in Jesus Christ, why we have put our faith in Him. And again, the best answer is not that I was raised that way, but let me give you three things this morning that I think are good reasons to explain why we believe in Jesus Christ. Last week that we preached on this, I gave you the word rest. Today I want to give you the three H's of belief in Jesus Christ. Three H's, letter H, of belief in Jesus Christ. Three H's of belief. Number one, the testimony of history. H for history. The testimony of history about Jesus Christ. First thing you need to know when you're talking to a skeptic, you've got to start at the very bottom. You can't assume they're already believing anything. So the first thing you need to know is that Jesus Christ was a real historical person. Jesus actually lived on this earth. In history, we know that Jesus Christ lived on this earth. By the way, no serious historian doubts that fact. There's a movement now because it would just kind of cut the knees out of Christianity to say, hey, Jesus wasn't real to begin with. But no serious historian doubts that Jesus was a real person. Everyone knows if they are a serious historian, if they are good at history, if they are good at what they do, they have come to the conclusion that Jesus was a real person who really lived on this earth, really walked around in the ancient Near East, really was crucified. We'll get into that a bit next week. No serious historian doubts that Jesus was real. Not only do we have the four gospel writings that talk about Jesus, not only do we have these four different biographies about him in this book, which should be enough, but outside of the New Testament writers and the writings of the Apostle Paul, who, by the way, Paul started out as a skeptic. Paul was trying to destroy the church, and he met Jesus and had a conversion experience, and it changed his entire life. But not only do we have what's in the Bible, because a lot of times skeptics aren't going to buy what's in this book right at first, we also have around 20 non-Christian historical or archaeological sources about Jesus outside of the New Testament. Some of those including Jewish and Roman writings. So in other words, you don't just, you should take the Bible's word for it, but you don't have to take the Bible's word for it. We have other facts that point to Jesus being a real person in this world who really did live. And if you say, well, I just, if, you're, if the person you're talking to says, I just want to throw out, I don't think there's enough evidence for Jesus to believe that he really lived. If you throw out Jesus, historians tell us you pretty much have to throw out all of ancient history. There's so much evidence there for Jesus. If you throw him out, you've got to throw out Julius Caesar. You've got to throw out all these other ancient figures if you throw out Jesus Christ. It's pretty settled that he was a real person. Not a historical expert, but a guy who was a brilliant person in his own right and not a Christian. He was actually a Jew. Albert Einstein was once asked what he thought about the historical Jesus. And by the way, when you go online and you do research, there's a lot of fake news out there. There's a lot of fake quotes. Sometimes you have to dig down and get to the bottom of all that to find out what's true and what's not. But this is a verifiable quote said by Albert Einstein about the Jesus of history. Einstein said, As a child I received instruction both in the Bible and in the Talmud. I'm a Jew, but I am enthralled by the luminous figure of the Nazarene. No one can read the Gospels without feeling the actual presence of Jesus. His personality pulsates in every word. No myth is filled with such life. 
Einstein recognized that Jesus was a real historical person. Jesus was a real person. He really did walk on this world. And that's the place that we can start when discussing with people why we believe in Jesus Christ. Jesus was real. Sometimes people will tell you, believing in Jesus is about like believing in Santa Claus or something like that. By the way, Santa Claus was a real historical person as well, if you'll dig into it. But Jesus was a real person. He was not a myth. He was real. He really did live in this world. Not only was he real, but I would say also he is the most important person who ever lived. We're not talking yet about being God in the flesh. We're just talking about importance in history. Jesus was the most important person who ever lived. I saw a list that was recently released, and they listed Muhammad as the most important person who ever lived. This is probably anti-Christian bigotry because most of the time when you dig in and you study, historians will tell you Jesus had more effect on this world, more positive for sure effect on this world than anyone who ever lived. You want proof? I'll give you proof real quickly. What year is it? 2019 A.D., which means 2019 years in the year of our Lord. In other words, we mark time by this man's birth. We mark time by the time that Jesus was born. We divide history before him and after him. So in the year of our Lord 2019, that shows you the impact that Jesus had in this world. There is no area of human existence since the time of Jesus that was not touched by the influence of Jesus Christ. Great quote that I found. Author Henry G. Bosch wrote this. He said, Socrates taught for 40 years. Plato taught for 50, Aristotle for 40, and Jesus for only three. Yet the influence of Christ's three-year ministry infinitely transcends the impact left by the combined 130 years of teaching from these men who are among the greatest philosophers of all antiquity. Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, brilliant men, brilliant philosophers, but they did not impact the world in all their years of ministry the way that Jesus did in only three. Jesus painted no pictures, he says, yet some of the finest paintings of Raphael, Michelangelo, and Leonardo da Vinci received their inspiration from him. Jesus wrote no poetry, but Dante, Milton, and scores of the world's greatest poets were inspired by him. Jesus composed no music, still Haydn, Handel, Beethoven, Bach, and Mendelssohn reached their highest perfection of melody in their hymns, symphonies, and oratories as they composed in his praise. Every sphere of human greatness has been enriched by this humble carpenter of Nazareth. I think that's worthy of giving God some praise for that this morning. Every area of human, human history has been touched by him. Or as the pastor James Allen Francis once wrote, all the armies that ever marched, all the navies that ever sailed, all the parliaments that ever sat, and all the kings that ever reigned have not affected the life of man upon this earth as powerfully as has that one solitary life. Jesus is easily the most influential person of all time. He is the most influential human that ever lived. I think any argument against that will fall way short. So that's the testimony of history. But we also have the testimony of the Hebrew prophets. The second H is the Hebrew prophets. 
The Bible tells the story of God choosing one people to work with in this world, one people that would be an example, one people that would be a channel of his grace. And those people were the Jewish people that God chose through a man named Abraham. A newspaper writer many years ago put it into a small poem. He said, how odd of God to choose the Jews. And yet he did. God chose the Jewish people to minister to this entire world. Sometimes they fulfilled their role. Sometimes they rebelled against the role that God was calling them to. And when they rebelled, God raised up prophets to rebuke and correct them. And so we have the Hebrew prophets. We have the Jewish prophets. It's an area of the scripture almost as long as the Gospels. And yet a lot of times in our Bible, it's the least read part of our biblical text is the Hebrew prophets. But these prophets foretold of a coming Jewish king, one who would be called the Messiah. Messiah means the anointed one of God, the chosen one of God. And these prophets made predictions about the coming of Jesus Christ. Now guys, tune in because I think this is some of the most powerful testimony that Jesus really is who he said he was. It's not the most powerful, but it ranks right up there as powerful, powerful testimony about the truth of Jesus Christ. There are dozens, dozens of predictions about the Messiah, even being conservative about it. There are dozens of predictions about the Messiah in the Old Testament, which were fulfilled in the life of Jesus. But this morning, I just want to give you, we don't have time to go through dozens, we'll be here all day, but I want to just give you two of my favorite predictions about Jesus made in the Old Testament that I believe point strongly to the fact that he was the Messiah, that he is God. Prophecy number one. The prophet Daniel. You probably remember that story about Daniel if you don't remember any other, right? Daniel in the lion's den and how God protected him there. I love how God sent an angel to shut the mouth of the lions. You ever met any person that sometimes you wish God would send that same angel to them? Just, yeah, just be quiet. Just, I don't want to hear you anymore. A lot of our politicians, God could send that angel to Washington. It might be great, but anyway. The prophet Daniel was a Hebrew prophet who had been exiled in Babylon. The people of God had continuously kept sinning against God. And God said, look, if you don't stop, you're going to be exiled. Another people is going to come down. They're going to capture you. They're going to take you to another land. They didn't listen, so God let it happen. And so they were exiled in Babylon. And they were there for 70 years as God had predicted through his prophets. But while prophet Daniel is a Hebrew exile in Babylon... In Daniel chapter 9, he's praying, and he records a vision that God gives him about the rebuilding of Jerusalem. And also, so you've got the rebuilding of Jerusalem on one hand. On the other hand, you have the time when the Messiah will be murdered. Daniel is predicting both of these things. So let's look at what God's Word says. Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 26 says, A period of 70 sets of seven has been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish their rebellion, to put an end to their sin, to atone for their guilt, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to confirm the prophetic vision, and to anoint, anoint the most holy place. Now listen and understand. Seven sets of seven plus 62 sets of seven will pass. We're talking about years here. Will pass from the time the command is given to rebuild Jerusalem until a ruler the anointed one, in other words, the Messiah, comes. Jerusalem will be rebuilt with streets and strong defenses despite the perilous times. 
After this period of 62 sets of seven, the anointed one will be killed, appearing to have accomplished nothing. And a ruler will arise whose armies will destroy the city and the temple. The end will come with a flood, and war and its miseries are decreed from that time to the very end. And so here's the prophecy given by the Old Testament prophet Daniel. In 445-444 B.C., in that period of time, Artaxerxes, who was the king of Persia, Persia ordered Nehemiah to rebuild the temple. So that's our starting point, about 444 B.C., 444 years before the time of Christ. The time from the order to rebuild the temple to the time of Jesus' death. Jesus lived about 33 years. Follow me, guys. If you're not a math person, you're, you're tuning out, you're thinking about fried chicken. Come back with me for just a second. All right, come back with me because this stuff is good right here. You're going to love this. The time from the order to rebuild the temple to the time of Jesus' death is 444 years B.C. plus 33 years of Jesus' life. That's 477 years altogether. Daniel prophesied that it would be 62 sevens, sevens being seven years, plus seven sevens, that's 69 times seven, and that equals a 483-year period. So this is what Daniel prophesied from the time the temple began, the decree went forth to rebuild the temple, to the time the Messiah would be sacrificed, it would be 483 years. So Daniel, actually it ended up being 477. Daniel prophesied 483. So look how close that is. He was only off by six years. But wait, we're not done yet. You see, the Jews used a lunar calendar, not a solar calendar. So when you count as a lunar calendar instead of a solar calendar, that means you have to subtract six years from that time period. And so actually it ends up being 477 years from the time the temple would be rebuilt, started to be rebuilt, till the time Jesus was sacrificed. If you missed what I just said, let me boil it down to you this way. 500 years before Jesus was born, the prophet Daniel predicted to the year when he would die on the cross. 500 years before. Only God can do that. Only God, lots of people can make predictions. You read the predictions of Nostradamus, and he made all kinds of predictions, and they were symbolic, and some seem like all sorts of different things can fit. But only God can predict to the year when something is going to come to pass. God predicted Jesus would be crucified at this point through the prophet Daniel, and that's exactly when it happened. That can't be anything but God. Does that amaze you as much as it amazes me? Is that as powerful to you as it is to me? Because I love that sort of stuff. It really bolsters my faith. But then there's more. Let me give you a second prophecy. When Jesus was on the cross, one of the things he said as he died on the cross was, my, my God, my God, why have you forsaken or why have you abandoned me? And Jesus wasn't just praying. Jesus was actually quoting the beginning of Psalm chapter 22. The Psalms weren't known in, in Jesus' time by a number like they are today. We talk about the 23rd Psalm, we talk, Psalm, we talk about the 100th Psalm. Back then they weren't known that way. They were known by the first line of each Psalm. And so when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's actually pointing to a Psalm. He's actually reminding them of a song that all of them would have known. He was quoting Psalm 22, which is a Psalm of King David. Psalm chapter 22, verses 1 and 2 says this, 
My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far away when I groan for help? Every day I call to you, my God, but you do not answer. Skip down to verse 6. But I am a worm and I'm not a man. I am scorned and despised by all. Everyone who sees me mocks me. They sneer and they shake their heads saying, Is this the one who relies on the Lord? Then let the Lord save him. If the Lord loves him so much, let the Lord rescue him. Skip down to verse 12. My enemies surround me like a herd of bulls. Fierce bulls of Bashan have hemmed me in. Like lions, they open their jaws against me, roaring and tearing into their prey. My life is poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax melting within me. My strength is dried up like sun-baked clay. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You have laid me in the dust, and you've left me for dead. My enemies surround me like a pack of dogs, an evil gang closes in on me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. My enemies stare at me and gloat. They divide my garments among them, and they throw dice for my clothing. Does that sound like the crucifixion to anyone? Does that sound like the crucifixion? To the point of when Jesus was beaten before he was placed on the cross, it actually tore so much, we, we speculate this, tore so much of the, the meat off of his flesh, that you could, off of his body, that you could actually see his ribs through his body while he was still alive. It talks about my heart melting like wax, and we're going to talk about this in next week's sermon, that actually we know that Jesus died of a burst heart because of the strain of being on the cross, and there's medical reasons for understanding that. But the key line there, one of the key lines anyway, is they have pierced my hands and feet. You have to understand that this was written 1,000 years before Jesus was crucified. In fact, crucifixion had not even been invented yet. And yet David predicts the exact manner of Jesus' death a thousand years, a millennium before the fact of Jesus' death and the fact of his crucifixion. And so let me boil that all down to you, those two things just put together. And believe me, there's, there's dozens of prophecies about Jesus. These are just two. But the Hebrew prophets predicted when Jesus would die to the year, 500 years before his death, and they predicted how he would die 1,000 years before his death. Only God can do that. Only God can pr predict something that's never... Nobody's seen crucifixion before. Nobody could predict that except God. Nobody could predict the year that it would happen except God. And again, there are dozens of other prophecies. A mathematician many years ago calculated just eight of those prophecies coming true in one person. Just eight of those Old Testament proph prophecies, including where he would be born his triumphal entry, everything else. If just eight of those came true in one single person, it would be beyond the realm of statistical probability. In other words, it couldn't happen without some sort of divine intervention. And yet we have dozens of prophecies that came true in Jesus Christ. And to me, I don't know about you, but to me that points to God working. That points to God working in history, God working through his son, God's word coming true. God said it and it happened in this world. And so we have the testimony of the Hebrew prophets about Jesus, that he really was God, that he really was God in the flesh. Number three, the third H that we have this morning. Lastly, we have Jesus' testimony about himself. Jesus' testimony about himself. 
I do not think that it is uh, exaggeration at all. It's not hyperbole to say that Jesus made the most startling claim in the history of mankind because Jesus claimed to be God in the flesh. He claimed to be the creator of the universe who had come as a man into this world. Now, there are people out there that will tell you that Jesus never claimed to be God. There's a professor just a little bit down the road at University of Chapel Hill that teaches Bible, and he will tell you that Jesus never made that claim, a guy named Bart Ehrman. He will tell you that Jesus existed historically, but he will tell you that he never claimed to be God, at least not outside of the book of John. And it is true in the Bible, there is no place where Jesus specifically says, I am God, you need to worship me. I remember when I was a teenager, we'd, we'd gotten a, a personal computer at home, and my mom and dad got a thing where you could search the Bible, and we were able to search the Bible for the first time. Now we do it all the time, but it was something new back then. And I went and I, I typed in to find it where in the Bible it said specifically, Jesus is God. And it startled me that I couldn't find those three words connected together anywhere in the Bible. But it's not said like that, but Jesus did claim to be divine. He did claim to be more than just a human being. For one of the things that, that proves it to us is Jesus used the special name of God for himself. When Moses met God and he said, who should I tell Pharaoh that is sending me? God said, you need to tell him I am that I am is sending you. The great I am is the name of God. And he said, and so Jesus picks up in John's gospel alone 24 times Jesus emphatically uses the name I am for himself. I am the true vine. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the good shepherd. He uses these, and every time he says this, he's using the name of God. In fact, one time as he's working against the Jewish leaders, they're coming around him, and he says, Hey, guys, I want you to know something. Before Abraham was, I am. And when he said that, they got it. They immediately knew what he was talking about, and they picked up stones to stone him because they knew that he, being a man, was making himself equal with God. And to them, that was blasphemy. To them, that could not be true. And so Jesus makes the greatest claim, the most outrageous claim that anyone has ever made about himself. Sometimes skeptics will point out, you know, Jesus doesn't call himself the Son of God a lot of times in the New Testament. His favorite designation for himself, his favorite title for himself was the Son of Man. And so they'll say, see, Jesus was pointing to his humanity. Jesus wasn't pointing to being God. But they don't understand the background behind that phrase, the Son of Man. Eighty-one times in the New Testament, Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. Skeptics say that's just pointing to him being a mere human being. But actually, there's an Old Testament reference that goes with that. It's again from the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 7 says this, As my vision continued that night, I saw someone like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient one, meaning God, and was led into his presence. He was given authority, honor, and sovereignty over all the nations of the world so that people of every race and nation and language would obey him. And you say, well, maybe that was a human ruler. Maybe that was King David. Maybe it was somebody like that. But then it goes on to say, his rule is eternal. It will never end. His kingdom will never be destroyed. When Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, he's not pointing to his humanity. He's pointing to his deity. 
He's saying, I'm God. I'm the ruler that will rule forever. I'm going to become the, the king of this world, and nobody's going to remove my reign. I'm going to be here forever, and nothing's going to be able to come against me. And so Jesus, in calling himself the Son of Man, was basically saying, I'm God in the flesh. I'm divine. I'm something more than a mere human being. I'm God come to this earth. The fact that Jesus calls himself God means something. When we find out that Jesus did truly call himself God, it means that we have to make a decision about who Jesus is. Sometimes you'll hear, hear people say, I believe Jesus was a great moral teacher. I believe he was a great prophet or I believe he was a great philosopher, but I don't believe Jesus was the son of God. Mahatma Gandhi said that. Gandhi said, first of all, he said that I like your Christ, I don't like your Christians, which can sometimes be an indictment against the way that Christians act. But he also said, I believe Jesus was a great teacher, but I do not believe he was divine. I can't go that far. I can't see him as actually being God. He is the Lord of all creation. Yes, I want to make him the Lord of my life. Yes, I've been to church yesterday. you out. But is there anybody who would say, yes, I believe in him. My faith, I need to put in him. And I want to place my faith in him today. If that's you, would you raise your hand? Quickly. Quickly, I see one hand going up. Is there anybody else? I see another hand going up. Is there anybody else who would say, I want to follow him? I see another hand going up. Anybody else? Don't miss this moment. The great thing, another great thing about Jesus is he's here right now. Through his Holy Spirit, he's present in this room. Anybody else? Anybody else who would say, I want to put the weight of my life on him this morning? Thank God for these three. Thank God for these four that have raised their hand. Okay, you can look up now. Our worship team is going to lead us in a song about Jesus and about him being enough. And I tell you, over the years, I have found that Christ is enough for me. Through the trials, through the tribulations, through the good times, through the bad times, I found that Jesus is enough for me to put the weight of my life on, that he is who he said he was. And he will do in you something that nobody else can do if you'll just surrender to him. I'm going to ask you to stand this morning. The worship team is going to lead us in this one final song. Thank you so much for being here today. I pray that you'll come back next week. I pray that you'll invite somebody that doesn't know Jesus. Next week, we're talking about the cross. Billy Graham said one time that he never left the cross out of his sermon because there's power in the cross. And so next week, we're talking about the cross. It would be a great week to invite somebody. Invite somebody who is spiritually unresolved. They don't know yet where they're going to put the weight of their life. Invite them to come with you. Invite them to tune in online. Invite them to learn more about Jesus and who he is. Let's worship this morning. There's nothing in this world that can ever satisfy Through every trial, my soul will see no turning back I've been set free Christ is enough for me Christ is enough for me.
Decided to follow Jesus, no turning back, no turning back. I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back, no turning back. The cross before me, the world behind me, no turning back, no turning back. Father, thank you for meeting with us today. Thank you for Jesus and the ministry that he brought to this world, a ministry unlike any other. Thank you that he was God in the flesh and he did not think the throne in heaven was something that he had to hold on to, but he let go of that so he could be placed on a cross for us. God, when we leave this place, I pray that the name of Jesus would be on our lips, that we would live in such a way that it would bring him glory. That we would come back next, we would invite God, and we would invite somebody to come and hear more about who Jesus is and why He can change their life. Father, we love you and we praise you, and above all, we thank you for Jesus. It's in His name we pray these things. And Rushwood said together, "Amen." Hey, I love you, and there's nothing you can do about it. I'll see you next Sunday morning. God bless you guys. <laughs>